Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 72, air date October 20th, 2015. We have Dr. V. A. Shiva Ayyadurai, the inventor of email. Email. Can you think of a world without it? What would our world have looked like if email did not exist? Would someone crack it sometime later? Or what if it was invented a very long time ago? Yes, amidst us, today we have the inventor of email who had invented it. 32 years ago, at the age of 14. Dr. V. A. Shiva Ayadure is also a system scientist, technologist, entrepreneur, and educator, who holds four degrees from MIT and is a Fulbright scholar. He is also MIT's award finalist and Westinghouse Science Talent Honors Award recipient. His research and entrepreneurial efforts are focused on system science and its applications across the fields of both media and medicine. Today, 
he is more concerned with who controls innovation and how is humanity going to move forward he is that indian boy who changed the face of technology forever today he is going to enlighten us on india innovation taking us back to the future presenting to you dr v a shiva ayadurai the inventor of email and system scientist who made one of the most noteworthy inventions in the world history of technology so put your hands together for one and only dr v a shiva ayadurai now we have uh we have soundarya of third bcom to present to welcome sir with a bouquet and now we have a small video presentation for you sir this is my theory on it it's not the content it's i mean you don't need to text but people are doing it just to connect with another human being so a lot of the information is almost you know uh irrelevant it's a fact that someone's sending these little love notes sometimes how are you doing you know these kind of communication so i think what people are really trying to do in that over communication is trying to connect and i think we're in this phase now in humanity with all these communication vehicles but we still as humans trying to figure out how do we connect because that ritual mode of communication has been removed from us so that's what we really want to go back to and as people reconnect with that you won't have to do that much transmission um that that's the sort of the, you know the sort of the philosophy i have of this which is really not mine it's other people's but it's something i wanted to stage is all yours welcome welcome so i want to thank the grd leadership for having me here and thank you for a very nice video you guys made i'm very uh, honored to have the opportunity to present here now is everyone here from plus 2 is that what it is or from the college right graduates and postgraduates so freshmen sophomores juniors and the money right okay so Let's start. You know, uh the invention of email is really not something that's mine. It's actually your innovation. It's really an Indian innovation. And I think everything that you heard in the introduction really should make everyone Okay, let me put this in. One second. We'll start again. <laughs> so um I think the invention of email as I was mentioning is really not my invention, but it's really a product of India. 
And I want you to really think about that as I go through this talk, because the title of the talk is Indian Innovation Back to the Future. And everyone see that uh, movie ever, Back to the Future? How many people have seen that? Okay, about some of you. But in Back to the Future, it's actually about you go back, but you th it's basically about time traveling. And it's about recognizing that what you think is in the future actually took place in the past. So if you look at uh, Prime Minister Modi's speech recently, he talked about that we need to create an India where we have startups, entrepreneur, and innovation. Right? That was really the message of the Independence Day celebration. So that's the theme I want uh, to connect with, but I want us to connect with from the standpoint of let's look at something very tangible, which was the invention of email. And the advantage that you have is I'm not dead. I'm still alive. So you have the opportunity to actually interact with me. I'm, I'm right here. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to have a conversation about this because I think this is really called face-to-face. -face. So I'm hoping to actually talk, share with you a lot, uh, but then hopefully all of you uh, will participate in this conversation because it's called face-to-face. -face. So let's talk about what I mean by back to the future. So um, I'm going to walk you through my journey, right? So I grew up in two Indias. You know, I grew up in this picture of India, which you can think about as Bombay, which is a very, very cosmopolitan city. You have people of all different races, all different cultures, all different languages. And that's what I grew up in as a very young boy. But I also grew up in this world, which is a very different world. It's a, it's a world which some of you may know of. How many people grew up in a village have been to a village? Okay, so about... 40%. Uh, you know, in, in, in our company in Chennai, I found out many people never even experienced a village. But I grew up in this village where there was no electricity, there was no uh, running water. And so it was a very different world. But in this village, as some of you may have seen, you know, there were beautiful temples, small temples. Um, but my grandparents were actually small village farmers. My grandmother actually used to plant rice. She worked in the fields for 16 hours a day. And that's actually a picture of her. Her name was Chinatai. But my grandmother is interesting that not only did she work as a farmer, a very hardworking farmer, if you saw her, she had tattoos on, on her body, um, and she was actually also a Siddhar, a healer. She had grown up in Burma, and she had learned how to heal using our Indian form of traditional medicine called Siddha, right? which many of, many of us have been taught have no value, but I saw her heal people where she would observe their face, and based on observing their face, you could understand the different dysfunctions in their body. You see, today we go take blood tests, we do MRI, we do all these things, and most doctors still can't figure out what's going on. But you pay them quite a bit of money to do that. But my grandmother wouldn't accept any money, and within you know seconds to minutes, she could figure out what was going on in someone's body, and then she would prescribe them different types of medicines, right? And but those medicines varied from person to person, so. Someone over here may get a very different type of mantras to use or different formulations and different types of, um, uh, you know, asadas, right? So it was a, what today the Western world is calling personalized medicine. But that's what this woman did. So I was very, very fortunate to observe this. But more importantly, I started wanting to understand how this woman with, quote, unquote, no education, I, I don't even think she went to any school, um, how she was able to do this. But my grandmother also had another side to her. She also taught me as I would sit in her lap great stories of Ram, you know, the great stories of Shiva, you know, good versus evil, right, that people should stand up for justice. So that was the other education I got from her, you know, and loyalty, 
between people, what it meant to be courageous and to be a collective fighting for good things. Because you have to understand, I also grew up in India where there was a deep caste system. We came from a quote-unquote a lower caste. So I was also made aware of that. But so my heroes ended up becoming not people like you would consider heroes, Nehru or Gandhi or those people. My heroes were people like Bhagat Singh who were fighters, who actually said we should fight, right? Or people like Crazy Horse. He was a great warrior for the American Indian people or Che Guevara, right? So these were the heroes that I established as heroes in my mind and the fact that I also had a deep interest in science. So my parents, when I was seven years old, moved to the United States. It's actually a picture of my family, my sister, etc. And I was this 14. Uh, by the time I was 14 years old, I was uh, extremely ambitious. I was not only good at sports, but I was also very good at athletics. But I was also um, extremely uh, wanting to figure out how my grandmother was actually able to do this. So I was very, very motivated by medicine. So when I was 14, I actually had finished up all my math courses, and the university and the school I went to had no more courses to give me, and so I ended up going to a university. I had the opportunity to be one of 40 students who was selected by the by New York University to under to um, go to the Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences, where they selected 40 kids. This is in 1977-78 to learn software programming. There was a professor at this university who recognized um, that it was important that we have future software engineers, right? So this is almost um, 40 years ago. So I was the only Indian selected, and I graduated top of the class. And I wanted to drop out of high school because I didn't have anything else to do. So my mother introduced me to a professor at a medical college who was doing research on babies who are dying in their sleep. There's a syndrome called SIDS. Has anyone heard of this? Sudden Infant Death Syndrome? Okay, so in the United States, it's a disease where when a ba infant is born, um, it'll suddenly die in its sleep. And and it turns out that babies have different sleep patterns. In fact, babies have six states of sleep, very different patterns of sleep. Uh, adults have five. So at some point in that sleep pattern, the baby would get what was equivalent to a heart attack and it would die. So I thought I would have the opportunity to do research on this with this guy. Because remember, I was interested in medicine, right? But he wanted to have me do something else. He wanted to challenge me based on my programming skills. So in those days, um, as I shared earlier, women were relegated to probably one of three different jobs, right? They could be a secretary, they could be a nurse, or what else? They could be a teacher, right? So women, that was pretty much, or you could be a housewife, okay? but. That was the three or four jobs you actually had to do, which is far, you, you have far more freedom today. So that secretary literally would sit at her desk, and on her desk she had an inbox, an actual metal box, which was called I-N-B-O-X. She had another box called Outbox. She had another box called Drafts. Behind her were all big file folders. Underneath her desk was a trash can, on her table was an address book. You getting the idea? Sound familiar? This was her desktop, okay? This was officially her desktop. And on that desktop, this woman was chained in some ways to her desktop because her boss would come to her 
and he would tell her what to do. He would dictate, she would take his dictations, type it on the typewriter, she would put that dictation in the drafts folder. He would then come pick it up and he would mark it with a red line, okay? Then she would retype it and then she would put it in the outbox, right? A mailman would come pick up the outbox and he would deliver it to the other office. Sometimes she put that letter, in fact, many times, which look like this. If you look carefully, it's got two from subject CC, carbon copy. It was literally, she took a piece of paper, she put carbon paper and typed on that carbon paper and she would make a copy. And that was called CC, blind carbon copy. She would sometimes take a paper clip and do an attachment. Okay, so this was the actual inter-office mail system. And then she would put it in this thing called the inter-office mail envelope. And that's how those envelopes looked. They literally had a red string. You put it in, you wrapped around the red string, and then you put it in one of these things. Anyone ever seen this? And these were called pneumatic tubes. So I want you to look at this because this was called the inter-office mail system. And it was a very complex system because you needed all these parts. And if you didn't have the inbox, it wouldn't work. You see, it was a very complex system. It wasn't just texting messages. Okay? Anyone of you seen this before? Okay, so this is the origin of email. It didn't come out of the Defense Department. It didn't come out of MIT. It came out of this medical college. Because what I was asked to do was to con convert this entire system to the electronic version, which means take all these processes, and there were hundreds of different functions. You should be able to broadcast a memo. You should be able to delete a memo, a letter. You have to be able to archive it, folders. There are all these functions. And I called that system email. And this is actually a, a, a news article that came out in 1980. And this is actually the computer code now, which is in the Smithsonian. I don't know if you can see it. It says E-M-A-I-L. Everyone see that in the upper left corner? I don't know if you can see it in the back. Now, why did I call it email? If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary and you look in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the word doesn't really come up until, I think, uh, Oxford has it in 1980, and Merriam-Webster has it as 1982. And I had called it email in 1978. So I was the first to use the term, and it seems like an obvious term, right? But it isn't, because prior to 1978, people had the notion of electronic mail or electronic messaging. But that referred to anything being electric, right? Like telegraph, radio type, teletype. But E-M-A-I-L, those five characters had a very specific meaning. It meant the electronic version of the inter-office mail system. Right? It's this system. That system is what email is, that whole system. This is when you log into email, what do you see? You see inbox, you see outbox, address book, because that's where it comes from. Okay? It was, I was creating the electronic version of that, and the reason I called it email was because of Fortran language. Everything had to be in uppercase, and the operating system had a limit where you could only have five characters. Okay? If it was, you know, nine characters, I may have called it electromail or something else. So was it an obvious term in 1978? In fact, I remember seeing it. I thought I should call it e-mall. The, the word was just so new. 
So I was 14 at the time. So this 14-year-old Indian immigrant kid in Newark, New Jersey, by the way, the, the, the medical college I was at where we developed the system is one of the poorest cities in the United States. So this was not Silicon Valley. This was not MIT. This was not IIT. This was not, you know, uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. This was a poor school in a poor city. In fact, 90% of the people in that city were African Americans. Most white people were afraid to go into that city. So in that city is where innovation took place, where I had good parents who supported me. I had a good mentor, Dr. Michelson, who was a physicist, right, who gave me this opportunity. And then the other thing was there was a good teacher who fought with, with my high school to change the rules so as a 14-year-old, I could travel 30 miles and work full-time. You follow? So that was the triangle. Good parents, a good teacher, and a good mentor. In that ecosystem is where email came out of. Very few, very few dollars. In fact, I wasn't even paid. They gave me free lunch at the cafeteria. And I think two years later, they gave me $1.25 an hour, which is like 50 rupees an hour. Now, in 1978, there were no laws. Think about this. There was no legal laws to even uh, protect software, right? If you write something today, there's a law, you can copyright it, right? If you create a piece of music, you can copyright it. If you create the iPhone, you can patent it. But if you created software, no one even knew what software was. There was no laws to protect software. However, in 1980, um, there had been a law called the Copyright Act of 1976. The Copyright Act of 1976 let you protect music and let you protect literature. The Copyright Act of 1976 was amended in 1980 to become the Software Act of 1980, which let you protect software through copyright. The United States Supreme Court didn't even let you patent software. so. Um, what happened to me was I went on to MIT, and I became the student body president of MIT, and I was having dinner with the president of MIT, and he was saying, you know, it's too bad that you cannot patent software, but you should copyright it. So that's what I did. And you'll notice in the upper right corner that it says August, what do you see, August 30th, right? 1982. So that is the official, so even though it was created, the United States government recognized me as the inventor of email on August 30th, 1982. It's black and white, isn't it? Email, computer program for electronic mail system. So that's what occurred in 1981, 1982. In fact, when I came to MIT, you know, MIT is a very competitive school to get into. Um, in my year, 1,041 students got into MIT. And out of them, in the front page, they highlighted three students, and I was one of them. So, but I never thought a lot about this, you see, because when you're an inventor, a real artist, you never think about fame or fortune. You really think about what's the next idea you want to do. And remember, email was a diversion. What did I really want to do? I wanted to do medicine. So I went to MIT, and I'll come back to that. But what happened on the email story was this. Um, when I went to MIT, I did, ended up doing, as, 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 as you shared, four degrees at MIT, in and out of there. I did PhDs. I started many companies, created many things during the 30 years. In 2011, my mom, uh, my mother, who's the one who encouraged me to go to NYU, who's the one who introduced me to Dr. Michelson, um, 
is a one who was dying with a, a, a rare disease called pulmonary fibrosis. And in a suitcase, this is now in 2011, 30 some odd years later, she had kept in her uh, the suitcase all the artifacts that you see. She'd saved everything, the copyright notice, the actual original computer code. And, and a friend of mine came over, this picture of my mom, and he said, Shiva, you invented email. Why haven't you told anyone about this? And so then he had another friend of his come over. And first article came out in Huffington Post. And his friend, you can see Doug Ameth. Doug wrote this article called The Man Who Invented Email. This was in November 11th, 2011, that appeared in Time magazine. So when that came out, the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian Institution, is the biggest, is the biggest museum in the world. They wanted all the materials. That's where Alexander Graham Bell's um, telephone is, you know, Edison's light bulb is, and they wanted this as a part of that. So I agreed to give them all the materials, and this article appeared in the Washington Post in the small video you did. That was the interview I was doing for the Post. And this article says, V.A. Shiva honored as the inventor of email by Smithsonian. Great honor, right? 35 years later. It's a great honor not only for me, but it's really for India. Because remember, I was an Indian citizen when I invented email. Okay, so it's actually Indian made. Now, you would think that everyone would be very happy about this, right? You guys are happy. But some people were not so happy. So all, so right after this went into the newspaper, you saw all of this vitriol come out. Vitriol means anger. People call me an imposter. In fact, I want you to read this. Some of the language isn't good, but I want you to look at this. It basically says this curry-stained Indian should be hanged and beaten. Okay? So this is in 2012. American, some of the people are so angry that an Indian could claim or have the facts that he invented email. So I'm looking at this now. I'm wondering what's going on. Why are people, you know, so upset? And you find out that there's an organization of historians called SIG CIS. In India, we have corruption, right? Everyone knows about corruption? But what you don't know is that in America, the corruption is so deep. Any Indian politician is like a baby compared to an American politician. America thinks, presents itself as this very free, open country, but it's probably the most corrupt nation in the world. Okay? Its corruption is very deep. They pay scientists and historians to write history. This is a non-profit NGO group of historians who had written, already written the history that email was invented by this company called Raytheon. Now, Raytheon is a $50 billion defense company. All right? And what they had done while I was quietly doing other things, being a good, humble Indian, because that's what they train us to do, right? This company had created their own history using their propaganda machine, tens of millions of dollars in public relations, because remember, the, you know who Edward Snowden is, right? He brought out the fact the United States is spying on everyone. Well, in, in 2008-9, defense companies wanted to get into spying on everyone, so they created cybersecurity divisions. Raytheon wanted to get into that market, so they rebranded. I know uh, Rom here is a branding expert, so he'll appreciate this, right? So they wanted to rebrand their company, so they used the at logo. You see that? 
and they say that they're innovators. And they have a picture of a guy who looks like an inventor. He's got the nice dardy, the beard, and he's got glasses. And he had used the at symbol to exchange text messages. So they rebranded that as email. You following me? They rewrote history when the term email never even existed in early 1970s. If the Russians do this, Americans call it Stalinism. They call it revisionism. But when they do it, it's called history. All right? So that's what they did. Now, I, but you have to understand that I was able to figure this all out because I didn't tell you something about me. Not only am I a scientist and an inventor, but I'm also a student of history. And I've always been a fighter for others. Now, why do I say that? You see, a few years before this, I was appointed, you can read in the, you can read in the articles, in 2008, I came back to India after I finished my PhD to, to do research on Siddha and Ayurveda, after I finished my PhD. And when I was finishing up my, uh, P, uh, my Fulbright research, I was appointed by the Prime Minister of India's office to run the innovation division of CSIR, Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. Now, if you remember, that symbol there is CSIR's logo. CSIR was set up by Nehru in 1947 to really uh, support innovation in India, which means the idea was that we would create products that would help the Indian masses. Just take a glass of water here. So what that meant is that um, scientists would not just do simple papers and doing basic research, they would actually create products. So that's what CSIR was set up for. During those 70 years, CSIR had become essentially a organization which had a lot of patents, a lot of papers, but didn't really innovate anything. So, so in 2007 and 8, I think there was a lot of pressure on the Indian government. So I was brought in as an MIT guy who'd done companies, and they said, Shiva, why are you leaving? We'll, give you, we'll make you an additional secretary in the Indian government. Scientist level H, you report to the director general. So I decided to take on this role because I thought I could contribute back to India, to my what my grandparents had done, etc. So within about three months of being there, I wrote a report which really talked about how to improve Indian innovation. And I realized that throughout India, there were very uh, smart people. In fact, CSIR had 4,500 different scientists, 37 labs. And as I traveled all around India, I met with about 2,000 scientists, and I found out they had all amazing innovations. But their directors of their institutes were so afraid of their subordinates that they kept squashing them. Okay? So India, it's not Indians weren't able to innovate, but the leadership was very futile, just like the British. They'd essentially learned stuff from the British on how to keep people in a stratified way. So I ended up writing a report. My father-in-law at that time said, Shiva, just be quiet. You know, one day we'll be Minister of Science and Technology. Don't make any waves. But that's not who I am. So I wrote this report which said, look, if India wants to innovate, these are the things it needs to do. And within, I think, hours of releasing that report, I was fired. 